for some of you that have uh, read our passage today, you'll, you'll see that it's perhaps a little academic in content, maybe uh, intellectual, I guess. But I hope today as we go through that passage that we'll look beyond the facts and let Christ, who's the object of the passage, change our hearts in the, in the way that we live. And uh, it, it happened this week to me in a way that was somewhat surprising. I uh, was recommended that I look at a, uh, or a book was recommended to me. It was a, a book called uh, Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp. And its subtitle was Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral or Elder, I guess I could put that elder in parenthesis, elder ministry. And uh, so I wanted to be a little transparent with you and, and kind of reveal a little bit about how God is working in my life. So as I read this book, I was very convicted, even before I got past the first chapter. <laughs> uh, Paul spoke of his early ministry and himself, finding himself to be in reality an angry man, something he'd always refused to acknowledge. There was a disconnect between his public life and the pursuits that he had and the true status of his heart. And I reflected on that and like him, I could see in the past I put undue emphasis on ministry and work over family and it was really angry when everyone didn't get in line. And I, but at the time, I couldn't see it. You say I was blind. I had confused accumulating knowledge and experiences with spiritual maturity and ignored my sinful heart. So this last Friday, I sat down with my wife and I asked for her forgiveness for my emotional distance from her, my anger, and my failures in this area. And one thing she mentioned in response, among her tears, was that during one time of conflict, I had told her, I see our, our marriage as a business relationship. That sounds very tender, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, can you believe it? It was, uh, shows how hard-hearted I was and how damaging uh, I was and the things I said to my precious wife. But uh, she forgave me and told me how God had worked in her life over the years, encouraging me to not only to just glance in the rearview mirror of life, but keep focused on the path, of he path ahead and live in the grace of Christ. And I think that's a good uh, reminder for all of us, especially in this passage. And part of what we'll see is, is the amazing nature of who Christ is and I think it'll make his grace seem even more phenomenal maybe than we've ever seen it before. There is a famous song that was written about the subject of God's grace. It was called Faith's Review and Expectation. A song written for a New Year's service some years ago. Do any of you know that song? Like strike a chord of something in your, your memory where that comes, comes right out? Well, I'll let you in on a secret. It's more commonly known by the, the title Amazing Grace. 
that comes from the first line of that song. But that was a song that John Newton wrote way back, back when, I don't know, 1700s or something like that. And uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And if you, if you knew about his life, his early life as a, uh, even a slave trader, you would understand how amazing he saw his own salvation and God's grace because he turned away from the gospel as a young man, became a slave trader in, on a ship. And it wasn't until midlife that he finally, uh, God grabbed his heart and turned him around. And uh, I was uh, reminded of, of a passage in Ephesians that speaks of that. I'll read it to you. It's Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Amazing statement. You know, in my, my email mails, I automatically add a thing at the bottom. Maybe some of you do this too. Uh, I was trying to f- figure out what the proper name for that thing is, and, and uh, in times past, that was called a valediction. I don't know if you knew that or not. Now it's, they've uh, kind of dumbed it down. They call it a complimentary close. But uh, what I usually do is I, I say, in Christ, followed by my name. But that raises the question, who is Christ? Who is this person that I claim to be in? <clears throat> if we look at uh, what Paul says in Titus, it kind of tells us something about that relationship we have for him. Here's what God says about us. He says, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So I think this reminds us that we weren't exactly the prizes that we sometimes think we are in relationship to Christ. It was God's grace that took a hold of our hearts and brought us out of darkness. But you may ask, what's the big deal about God's grace? So I hope today to shed a little light on that, maybe give us a bigger perspective of who Christ is and let this motivate our reflection on God's grace and the God's goal of obedience in our heart. So let me read uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, which is the text for our study today, and we'll begin. He, Jesus, that is, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, the title today was The Preeminence of Christ, and we'll see uh, why that is true, and, it, and it's really brought out in the first section and expanded as we go through the text. So the first part I just thought was the authority, which is sort of another uh, synonym for for the preeminence, but it, uh, preeminence doesn't start with an A, so I have to start. I have to find a word that starts with an A. So, uh, <clears throat> in the it comes about in the, in the second part of that uh, first sentence, verse fifteen it says, "The firstborn of all creation." Now you might wonder, uh, how do we get that out of the firstborn? Well, the firstborn has two meanings. One meaning is it can be chronological meaning. For instance, if you have multiple children and somebody asked you who the firstborn is, you'd look at the oldest child and you'd say, this is you know, our, our eldest right here. And uh, that would be your firstborn. That's one meaning. The other meaning is it's the preeminent son, the one who has the rights of inheritance. For instance, Jacob and Esau were, when they were born to uh, Isaac, Jacob was the firstborn, but God chose to bless Isaac and make him the preeminent authoritative son of that uh, family to carry on the uh, promise of Abraham. And so that's the meaning here. And you say, well, why is that? Well, for one, the uh, text can't have the former meaning because it says Jesus is the creator of all things. If he's the creator of all things and he's a created being, in other words, a firstborn in the sense of creation, then that means Jesus is also one of the things that he created. But that's a logical impossibility. You can't be both in existence and not existence at the same time. I think there's a theological term for that. It's called logical gobbledygook. You can ask, ask uh, Paul and Samuel about that later and see if they, if they de define that properly in their seminary training. <clears throat> but it's a contradiction. Jesus can't be creator of all things and also a created being. It has to be the other one. That it has to do with the authority that he has under, under God. <clears throat> And so it means that Jesus is preeminent. And the other verses explain the features of that preeminence. But first, let's look at the first passage there. Uh, it says he is the image of the invisible God. Very important. And why is that important? Well, for one, God is, an, God is invisible and it's a as a consequence of his essence. In other words, uh, Jesus said God is spirit. And John reminds us that no one has seen God at any time. In 1 John 4.12. But we see, we've seen, or people have seen Jesus physically when he was on earth. So how does that work? If nobody's seen God and Jesus is God, 
but we've seen people, the 12, many people, at least 500 saw Jesus after he resurrected. How does, how does that work? Well, the, it's basically, it works by the fact that God can and does reveal himself as he chooses. And he does this in several ways. One is that God says he reveals himself to our spirit, that we're children of God. So when we turn to faith, we require God to open our hearts, for one, to pull a veil away from our eyes so we're no longer blind and we can see the truth of the gospel. And then he, he uh, confirms in our hearts with our spirit that we're children of God. So he communicates directly with uh, believers in that way. That's one way. The second way <clears throat> is uh, basically in the things that we observe around us. We can't see God, but we can see his works. And he reminds us in uh, Romans of that fact. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that mankind is without excuse. So you can see that even though God's attributes are invisible, he makes them apparent directly to everyone through the way he created us, how we understand things, and through the constant witness of the world around us so that nobody can say, I didn't have a chance to know God because God put it in your heart, your mind, and he's showing you continually that he's there and that he's a witness and his eternal power and divine nature is constantly around us. So that's the second way that God uh, uh, reveals himself even though he's, he's invisible. But people, of course, don't, don't respond to that. In, in our natural sense, we, uh, we like to pursue a life of unrighteousness evil, covetous, malice, like it says in uh, Romans 1.28. Strife, deceit, maliciousness, or gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice th such things deserve to die, people still do them anyway and they give approval. So that's the world we live in. That's our nat natural state that we come out, that we're uh, born into. That's the state that we practice. That doesn't seem a very uh, a positive, uh, positive description of us, does it? But that's what God says about us, and he uses the way we're made, and he uses the way the world is made to, to, to illustrate the fact of his divine, his power and his nature, his, uh, what did it say there? His eternal power and his divine nature. So that's one way is God witnesses through our spirit. The second way is through the evidence of how we're made and how the world is made around us. And the third way is God manifests himself through the, uh, in various ways personally. In the Old Testament, we see this in multiple times. 
maybe some of them that you remember. One is uh, multiple appearances of what's called the angel of the Lord. And uh, it's a, a special angel, a special physical appearance that receives worship. For instance, when uh, Joshua was approaching, I think, uh, Jericho, he met a armed soldier and he came up to him and asked him, you know, are you for us or against us? And the soldier basically told him, uh, take off your sandals here on holy ground. You're asking the wrong question. <laughs> the question is whether you're willing to submit to the, to the will of God. And uh, so that's the angel of the Lord. Moses saw something, God's appearance on Mount Sinai, right? He hid, God put him in a cleft of the rock and he passed by so he saw the light or power of the glory of God kind of uh, hidden and suppressed. He could see that part. And, and uh, I think last week we read uh, Isaiah 6 where it talked about Isaiah's vision of God where he saw a person seated on a throne. Well, that person is Jesus Christ. And uh, in all these cases, you'll see that the, when God manifests himself, he always has to tone down what, he's, what that manifestation is because it says he's, he dwells in unapproachable light. Many of you may think there's light in here and you think, oh, this is no problem. Light can't do anything. But you know that uh, just a few miles from here in the Boeing factory, they cut uh, heavy sheets of titanium and other kinds of stainless steel and other kind of metal using light. They just take and have this big machine that draws out the part and they just cut it out and it pops out of a, a big uh, sheet of material. So light can be extremely powerful. In this case, it's the light of God. And the only way we can experience that light and not die is if God tones it down somewhat and allows us to live in his presence. <clears throat> so that's, that's uh, how God manifests himself, those three different ways. Now in that passage, it speaks about the image of God. Think about image for a minute. You look around in our world today, we like to, to create things which raise our image or exalt ourselves. For instance, think about what you, with sports figures, movie stars, humanitarians, various kinds of people. You know, if you get your own brand of tennis shoes, that's considered a, a kind of a high mark for a lot of athletes. Uh, and it's not just constrained to our area. Caesar did the same thing. Other rulers do the same thing. You know, and Jesus says, show me a coin. They showed him a coin and he said, whose image is on this? And he said, Caesar's. So a lot of rulers at all times have put their image on coins as a sign of their authority and also a sign of who they are. They're propagating their image to all the people that are under them. I think one of the most uh, marvelous examples of that is a story about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. It says here in Daniel 3 that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth was six cubits. Well, how big is that? Well, a cubit's about a foot and a half. And uh, if you look around here, a lot of the 
the fir trees that you see are about 65 feet tall. So this is about half again as tall as one of these fir trees. And those fir trees are typically like uh, two and a half to three feet in diameter at the base. The six cubits is like nine feet. So it's like three times that diameter. So think, you know, 90 feet tall, way taller than a fir tree, three times in diameter going up. It doesn't say what the image was, you know, if it was just a, a pole, if it was a, a, a recon, uh, an image of himself somehow, whatever it was. The point was, he set it up in the plain and then he called all of the officials of his kingdom. And you can read the list of all their names in Daniel, a great uh, example of the fact that that Daniel was written during the time that this really happened. Nobody else, want, the kingdom of Babylon only existed for a short amount of time, and when that was over, those officials didn't have a role, didn't have a position, and yet the Bible calls them out exactly the order of all these people in the kingdom of Babylon. He called them all together to dedicate the image that he'd set up. And then he had a herald proclaim to the people, he says, you are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of, and he lists all kinds of instruments, I, I shortened it and just said worship. When you hear the sound of worship music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning furnace. So he had a, a very high <laughs> view of himself and his power and he exerted it through this uh, marvelous image of gold that he set up in the field. And all that was done for self-exaltation. The image was to raise people's view of who he was, but amazingly enough, that's not what God did when he sent Christ to us. We've already talked about how in his natural environment, if he translated his real holiness into light, nobody would be able to survive in his presence. But when, Jesus, when God incarnated, the second person of the Trinity incarnated as Jesus Christ, he put away that kind of glory, put away the damaging, uh, harmful glory, and he became a man, like one of us. He was clothed in flesh just like we are. Because God's purpose when he sent Christ wasn't to kill humanity. Like Jesus said, he came to, to save. <clears throat> Paul explains something uh, similar in the, in the letter to the Philippians. It says in uh, two, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when God came to earth that time, he didn't come to exalt himself and to show his glory in the full extent. He humbled himself, he took on the form of a man, he was willing to give up that glory. When he prayed in John, he said, he 
told God that he, about the fact that he had given up the glory that he'd had with the Father to come to earth, and now he was asking God to glorify himself and to glorify his son through the crucifixion. Amazing, how about that? <clears throat> and I think the Apostle John later in uh, John 1.14, when he's writing about, writing his gospel, how he's really just overcome by what he was a witness of. He says this in the word, which is another name he gave Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So you see that word again, grace showing up and truth. And uh, I think if we'd been there, like John, we would have been overcome by what we would seen and remember about Christ. Here was a man, Jesus, that only spoke what God spoke. He commanded nature, storms and weather, all those kind of things. He healed people and raised the dead with the word. He created food. He knew what was in the hearts of men, and he knew what was going to happen in the events, even before they happened. He used every situation to speak and model truth. He had compassion on sinners and even forgave sin, but was firm with the hard-hearted. And he gave his life for the redemption of sinful man. And he raised himself from the dead and seated, and was seated at the right hand of God. And yet he was also hungry, he was tired and sleepy. He breathed, he spoke, he bled when wounded, and he died like a man on the cross. What an amazing combination of features were illustrated in Jesus Christ in the image that God gave us of the invisible God. And of course, we know that that isn't the end of Christ, his resurrection, and, and he's not visible in the same way around us now, but uh, Philippians reminds us of this, that therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus' story doesn't, of course, end at his incarnation and death and resurrection, but he will come again. And we're, the full explanation of that is found in the book of Revelations as well and in other places and other uh, scripture, such as... Uh, Romans chapter 11 and, and uh, various places in the letters of the Thessalonians, among others. <clears throat> so Jesus has all of God's authority. The fact that he came as a man doesn't mean he gave up that, that authority. What it really means is he came as a servant. That was the image that God wanted to present at that time. 
So let's look beyond the authority and find some of the basis for it, which is found in the activity of Christ before he uh, presented himself to the world. Verse 16 says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So maybe step back and think about what all things means. Before God created, there was nothing in existence, not even space. And that's probably a hard concept to realize, but space is also a created thing. God doesn't inhabit space. He doesn't inhabit particular places in space. He's everywhere in space, but he's also everywhere out of space because God is, God is. And so the, everything that was created is a result of what God did in the creation act. He ha- he's everywhere, but he has no spatial extent. So it's not like, like uh, God is an extremely large person that can fill this place and he can move over here quickly and do this place and do this thing and he moves around or he's, he's very big and he has various inputs to himself. No, he, he's outside of space. Space is nothing to him. For instance, in Psalms 139, it talks about the fact that you can, uh, you can go into the depths of the sea, you can go to the highest mountain, you can go to all these places and God is there. When you were born, God really assembled even the molecules of your body in your mother's womb. That's how intimately involved he is in creation and how extensive he is in, in uh, his knowledge and presence of the things that are happening on earth. And yet he's not part of earth. He's not part of space. He's not part of a created thing. He's totally beyond it. <clears throat> in, his, in, the, in this description of creation, there's, there's two figures of speech that I thought we could talk about. It's a very cool world word. It's called hendiades. I think I said that right. So you want to say that? Hendiades? It's H-E-N-D-I-A-D-Y-S. And what it means is where you, you take two words and put them together with a conjunction, but the two words together are, are uh, used to symbolize one, one concept. And so I think it's done here twice, just to kind of cover the ground. One is when he uses it for heaven and earth. In other words, putting heaven and earth together and making it together, he's meaning everything, heaven and earth, the whole whole shebang here. And then he says invisible and invisible, visible and invisible, so it's the same way. It's not just heaven and earth and... uh, it's visible and invisible. So even if you can't see it, if it's not part of, of heaven or not part of earth, even if you can't see it, he created those things. So that would include all the, for instance, all spirit built beings are made by God. 
sometimes we uh, we use that same concept in our uh, in our common talk. Uh, we sometimes play uh, hide the thimble with our kids. Maybe you do that as well. And uh, if they're younger kids, they'll tend to to look in certain areas. And so sometimes we give them a hint. We'll say things like search high and low. And the meaning there is don't be constrained to only look in one area of the house, but look at the whole house and find the thing. And it may be that if they're always looking under things or in planners, they have just look up at eye level and they'll find the thimble hidden right there in front of them. So that's, that's how we use the same kind of uh, terminology when we speak. And then when he gets to uh, the next phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, he's basically illustrating uh, what all things includes. And when we look at those, uh, those terminology, we come up with uh, various ideas for what he's talking about. For instance, Acts 17, when Paul was speaking to the, uh, on Mars Hill, to the Greeks, he was talking about God and said he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him and he's actually not far from us. So uh, when he says the boundaries of their time and, and space we could, we could look at those things, thrones, dominions, and whatnot, and think of them physically as uh, boundaries and time and space, the, the boundaries of a nation and whatnot. And uh, that's one way we, those, those words are sometimes used in the Bible. The second is uh, to show a connection between the physical world and the spirit world. For instance, Daniel 10.13 says, this is Gabriel speaking when he came and spoke to Daniel who was praying. And Gabriel said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, another angel, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So God is giving us a little insight that there is an angel that is associated with the kingdoms of the earth. It has some role, we're not sure exactly what that role is, and we don't, aren't aware of it always, but there is one. And so when we talk about these things, he could be kind of mixing physical thrones and dominions with spiritual thrones and dominions. But I think the best understanding uh, is that he's really speaking of the spiritual realm. And he's countering the false teachers who are troubling the Colossians. And we see that term rulers and authorities again, for instance, later in... Colossians 2.15, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's speaking of Christ's crucifixion. So he uses that uh, similar terminology, rulers and authorities that he uses here. And it refers to Satan and his uh, dominions who Christ triumphed over when he uh, rose from the dead. And you can see similar wording in other Pauline letters. For instance, uh, Ephesians 1.20 says, When God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the, uh, the point here is that God, uh, that Paul is really pointing out that the rulers and authorities, that they think these spiritual powers are actually part of the creation, for one thing, and they are under Jesus Christ. He triumphed over them in the cross. They still have a role to play, but he triumphed over them in the cross. And then in the last part of the passage that we're talking about, he says, all things were created through him and for him. So he's just reiterating again. All things were created through, uh, through Christ, like you've already seen, just summarizing it again. It includes the rulers and authorities and dominions and thrones, all those things. And they're for him. In other words, they aren't extraneous. They didn't come from a different world. They aren't just extraneous features of our world. There are things that Christ really created for him. They're all accomplishing his purpose for he destroys evil and he enjoys eternity with his chosen elect, those believers who have turned to Christ for salvation. And uh, when you think about that, maybe you have the same response that Paul had in chapter 11 of Romans, he said this, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that it might be repaid him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So that kind of puts all those things in a package again of the amazing image of God in his glory and how he humbled himself and became a man. But he is waiting for the day when when, uh, his glory will be fully revealed and the earth will be changed. And one of the ways that the glory of Christ reveals now, is shown in this reference to Genesis, is in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says this, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, and where is that said? Genesis 1, right? Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we turn to Christ, what's really happened is that God has pulled the veil away so that we can see the glory of Christ and we can realize our great need because of our sin and turn away from that sin and turn to Christ. <clears throat> so, so in these uh, first two verses, I think we've seen the authority of Christ and we've seen a justification of that authority based on the activity of Christ. And now we're going to look at the last part, which is the autonomy of Christ. Verse 17 says, And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And I think Paul is emphasizing here a specific point, and that is that the creator of all things, that the creator is before all the things he created. That's what I was trying to say. And he's trying the, tying the previous points together in kind of a simple way. So he, he adds something new, that Christ is actively holding all things together. But the first element, well, I think we ought to realize, is that God didn't start with pre-existing material. He didn't start with something that was there, even space, and say, okay, I'll, now I'll modify this the way that I want to. No, he, there was nothing there. There was just God. And uh, he was before all things, so there's nothing. He was before, and then their creation happened, as we're explained in Genesis, over specific Genesis one and two, over a specific time frame. But then at the end he says, and in him all things hold together, which is now he's talking about, okay, God created and it still exists, so what, what happens? Is it just kind of flying through space doing its own thing since then? No. Christ is holding it together. So the created world is for Christ's purposes and our continued existence, existence is solely dependent on his will. That includes both the visible and invisible realms, good and evil, everything. Hebrews says something similar in, in verses 1 to 3. Maybe I'll just read the uh, end of verse 2. He has spoken to us, in other words, revealed himself in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. That's gets back to the issue of preeminence again. He's the preeminent son through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And if he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, what's important here is to realize that uh, there wasn't any pre-existing stuff that God used for creation. And he does things that seem impossible to us. For instance, Job says he stretches out the north over a void and he hangs the earth on nothing. Some other religious systems say, well, the earth rests on turtles or elephants or various other kinds of things. You know, you've seen the picture of Atlas in the Greek mythology holding the world on his shoulder. But that's not the picture of the Bible. The picture that God gives is that God hangs things on nothing because it's not visible. There's no visible foundation. Natural law, what we use to describe the regular order of the things around us is just basically our description of the regular manifestation of God's upholding power. That's all it is. It's not a perfect representation, but it's what we can do, and it changes over time. People find out at different times that uh, things that they thought were true are no longer true in the natural world, but the upholding power is constant through all this because God is asserting that power. 
So at this time in life, we see God's preeminence displayed in his authority over creation, explained by his activity during creation and by his autonomy in, in uh, upholding creation and conforming it to his will at all times. So the big question for us today is are we willing to submit to him? He has this great glory. That's part of his nature. He has everything in control. He is urging us all to submit to him. If we are apart from Christ, then maybe this whole thing seems kind of strange to you. But know that God's calling you to come to him right now for salvation. He says right now is a time to turn to Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's where we start. But he's offering us freedom from our sin-cursed path of life. His patience and kindness is meant to draw us to himself. So call on Christ. Beg him to save your soul. If we are in Christ and we claim to be in Christ, then know the extreme lengths that Christ went to secure your salvation. This amazing God, he created all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Temporarily gave up his glorious majesty. He didn't grasp on it like, I'm not giving this up. Let somebody else do this. No, he said, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm a willing servant of God. This amazing God gave up his glorious majesty to be our redeemer. And his earnest desire is that we follow him. In salvation, he made us a new person, freed us from the bondage of sin, but still allows us to proceed in life in a battle for holiness. We are called to love him, manifest his life in us. What truly amazing grace we have in Christ. And as Andre reminded us last Sunday, let's pray about all these things. As Psalms 119 133 says, keep steady. It's a prayer, appeal to God. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity have dominion over me. So I had some questions here that I'll briefly share with you. They came from a Paul Tripp book that I think are really valuable for us to think about. What are the things that you regularly say to you about you? Are there subtle signs in your life that you see yourself as being different from others in the body of Christ and to whom you minister? Do you see yourself as a minister of grace and in need of the same grace that you recommend to others? Are you comfortable with discontinuities between the gospel you speak and claim to believe and the way you live your life? Are there disharmonies between your public persona at church and the details of your private life? Do you encourage a level of community in the church and then fail to practice it? Do you fall into believing that no one has a more accurate view of you than you do? Do you use your knowledge and experience to keep people away? Do you see yourself as a man woman in need of God's rescuing grace and are you ready to respond to his promptings in your life? Good questions, huh? <clears throat> so let's uh, consider our hearts. Let's pray. Let's ask God to reveal the thoughts and intents of our hearts. 
see if there's any wicked way in us and turn from them. Pray continually as Andre reminded us. Let's be amazed by the grace of God who Christ is in reality and be confessing sin and seeking to manifest our Savior. So let's pray. Father, open our hearts to clearly see the glorious Christ, our Redeemer, to recognize and quickly turn from sin, to continually claim your amazing grace and be reconciled within our families and within the body of Christ. And so, in his wonderful, glorious name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.